50 seasons of New York Islanders hockey. And the New York Islanders have won their fourth straight Stanley Cup. A once-in-a-lifetime celebration. Oh, my goodness, Ryan Pollock saved the game! This is Talkin' Isles with Greg Picker and Corey Wright. We welcome into another edition of Talkin' Isles, the New York Islanders' official interview-based podcast presented by Betway. I'm Greg Picker, radio color commentator for the team, joined alongside by the director of digital, Corey Wright. You can also hear Corey on the radio pregame and intermission shows each and every Islanders broadcast. This week, we bring on another goalie from the late 80s, early 90s in the form of Glenn Healy. Glenn Healy, part of the 1993 team that went all the way to the conference final and really one of the better storytellers around, too. A very engaging guy. He of heels and flats fame told us a lot of great stories about playing in L.A., especially with the arrival of Wayne Gretzky. We talked about his preference in goalie mask, backing up at some of the buildings around the league. Just a real fun chat with a guy that is a great storyteller. And you can see why he had a career in TV after his playing days. Healy played 437 games in the National Hockey League from 1985 to 2001. 176 of those were with the New York Islanders. We'll take it away with the guy they call Heels. Montreal turned it up a notch after Steve Thomas tied this game, but Glenn Healy was able to close the door on Paul DiPietro. We now welcome in Glenn Healy to the Talking Isles podcast. And Glenn, we'll just start with this. How does a guy from Pickering, Ontario, end up playing at Western Michigan University? Uh, well, uh, I was um, kind of brought up in Pickering. It's known for a couple things. Well, one, I'm from there. I was the only guy who made the NHL from that town. And two, we have an eight-reactor nuclear power plant in Pickering. Those are our two claims to fame. But uh, my parents came over from Scotland after World War II. My dad fought in, uh, for the British in World War II. And uh, they really, as they settled in Canada and they had a family, they wanted one of their kids uh, to have an education. And so for me, the push was go to college. If you learn, you earn. And Western Michigan was the school that I thought gave me the best opportunity, not only to learn, but to improve my craft on the ice and got to play most of all the games at Western. But the focus primarily was to get an education because I really clearly didn't believe I had the talent to play in the NHL when I was uh, available at the draft and was undrafted, available at the draft the next time and went undrafted. I started to get the message that maybe schooling might be something you just stick your nose into, and that's what I did. Well, Glenn, obviously, you know, you were assigned by the LA Kings, and you know, did you kind of think you were getting on the radar? I'm looking at your Elite Prospects page, and I think All-American team, second All-American team, or a tournament MVP. I mean, did you kind of sense you were maybe going to be on the radar for some of these teams, or how did that no, signing with LA go? Not at all. And, you know, in some ways, my senior year undrafted, it was just by chance we ended up playing Bowling Green in a uh, championship game at Joe Lewis for the CCHA. And they, the LA Kings were in to watch a couple of their prospects. One of them was Gary Galley, who played for Bowling Green, Dave Ellett. And so they watched the game, and I happened to have one of those games that you never have. You know, with a ton of saves, we were outshot probably four to one. And Rogie Vashon in his, you know, French-Canadian accent said, who's that goaler there? Sign that there, there guy. And that's how it happened. I ended up getting signed by uh, the LA Kings and Rogie Vashon. And then it's that scene from Dumb and Dumber where, so you're saying we got a chance? 
So at that point, I had a chance. Uh, but really, there wasn't anything which indicated that uh, teams were coming and hunting me down. I received one letter from a club to come to training camp, and it was from the Washington Capitals. It was from Jack Button, who was a longtime scout and general man. Like he, he did everything with Washington. And looking back on the letter now, I didn't notice at the time, but it said, Dear, and then they wrote my name in. So we know now it's kind of the same letter everyone else got. So, but at the time I thought it was like, wow, how did he even know my name? He must've watched me play so raw and so innocent at the time, but that was it. And it was just by chance that uh, Rogachan uh, and uh, Pat Quinn came to that game, saw me play and gave me a chance. So that chance brings you to a couple of years of playing in the AHL in New Haven with the New Haven Nighthawks. And, Although there is no longer an AHL team in New Haven, the Islanders still have their AHL affiliate in Bridgeport. So what was it like going to, to play in New Haven? Obviously, the NHL team was pretty far away in Los Angeles. Well, you have to remember, back uh, in, in the 80s, teams shared a farm club. You didn't have your own farm club where you could put 23 players on a roster. In New Haven, we shared it with the New York Rangers. So one of the goalies was from the Rangers, and one was from the Kings. I was the Kings goalie. You had two defensemen from the Rangers, two defensemen from the Kings. So when you combine those two franchises and you start looking at who's available to play as the 21st man on your roster or 22nd man on your roster in a 21-team league, you get some really darn good players that are playing in the NHL. We had players on our team like Pierre LaRouche, who had 50 goals in the NHL. We had Mike Rogers, who had 50 goals with the Hartford Whalers. I played for a short stint with Glenn Hanlon, who was a longtime NHL player. So the teams were, you know, really decent hockey teams. And in a 32-team NHL league, some of them might have been pretty good NHL teams or good expansion NHL teams. So it was hard to stay and play in the NHL, uh, but I had that opportunity. I was lucky enough to stay and to play, and lucky enough that uh, I had a coach like Robbie Fatorik, who taught me how to become a professional. Because in no way was I ready to become a professional when I left, certainly Pickering. And then when I left college, not ready yet. You know, I'm like that whiskey that's still in the cast that you don't want to break it open yet because it hasn't reached an 18 year. Well, that was me. And then when I was ready for the whiskey to get broken open and for me to have a chance, that's that's when it happened for me. Just looking at the rosters on those New Haven teams, uh, I see that Robbie Fatorik also played a game in your first season there. So was he a player coach or like, what was the deal with that? We had games where, again, you know, you think about your farm club, it's in New Haven. So let you guys do a little sense of geography. The main club is in LA. So I don't know how many Greyhound buses can get there the day of, but not many. So, you know, there were times when you would have a shortened roster the Rangers would call up a bunch of players. We would have injuries. And then it was a matter of survival. Uh, I recall one game, we had an electrician from New Haven show up, and he had this kind of massive beer belly, and I looked over and thought, he's a professional? No, no, he's an electrician. He's here to play the one game. Uh, so, you know, you just kind of did what you had to do to get through, to get by and uh, Robbie had an illustrious career and was a great player and an all-star. And so in some ways, having your coach step on the ice was better than having some of the players step on the ice. So could he play two games? I wish he did. But uh, we just did what we had to do to get through at some points just based on the fact 
it was a bare bones roster and the farm club was not around the corner. Well, speaking of New Haven, I believe that was also the Islanders first ever affiliate when they broke into the league in 1972 and a couple Islander connections on those teams as well. Mike McEwen, Dave Longevin and Rolly Melenson. And that's a guy that you were also spent some time with together in LA. So you know, getting your time together, what'd you learn from Rolly the goalie? Yeah, Rolly was, uh, you know, clearly uh, well-experienced when I first started uh, playing in, in the HL and then the NHL. We were partners in the NHL for a little while with uh, the Los Angeles Kings and, uh, you know, lots of experience. And you learn from those kind of players. You know, we did have a goalie coach in L.A. in Phil Muir, but for the most part, on the rest of the teams that I played in the NHL with, the Islanders, a little bit with Billy Smith, but the Rangers, no goalie coach. The Leafs, no goalie coach. You really relied on your partner to help you through as to strategies, player tendencies, breakdown of power plays, breakdown of penalty kills, breakdown of uh, teams that are streaking and not streaking, players that are hot, players that are not. And so that's you know one of the things you relied on with your partner. It wasn't this kind of bevy of coaches like they have today where you have sometimes more coaches on the ice than players. Again, back to bare bones, we relied on each other as teammates. So a couple of years in Los Angeles, one BG, one AG. So one year before Gretzky, one year after Gretzky shows up. And I have to think that the hockey scene in LA was just a, a little bit different between those two years in which you were in Los Angeles. So just take us back to getting to play with Gretz and even what LA was like before he showed up. Well, before Wayne showed up, I think we had four sellouts and we were dancing around the league with yellow pants and a yellow helmet, and yellow sweaters. Uh, they're kind of cool now, but back in the day, they really didn't match anything we were wearing. We weren't a really good team, didn't win a lot of games, but man, we could beat people up. We had every tough guy in the league and uh, things totally changed when Wayne got there. The sweaters changed. We became the silver and black of the LA Kings. The Meet the Kings night uh, went from some bar in Redondo Beach to Beverly Hills, where you had Ronald Reagan, John Candy, Tom Hanks. Uh, we had Paul Anka and Neil Diamond sing at the Meet the Kings night. Paparazzi were in full play, and it was just a much different animal. And with the addition of one player, we became an elite NHL team that finished with almost 100 points in that first year. So a complete change. It was the place to be at the Forum. The games were all sold out. They were all televised. We were the Beatles on the road, no matter where we went. It was always a full house. It was a full house for practice, a full house for the games, every game on TV. You couldn't have been a better spot at a better time with a player who at the time was by far the best player in the game and had just come off winning four cups in, in Edmonton in five years. So, and when I heard of the trade and Bob McKenzie, who's an NHL insider in Canada, told me a couple of days before that we were getting Wayne and I thought that he should check into rehab, that he had clearly drank too much that afternoon. And then sure enough, a couple of days later, the trade gets announced. And I thought, how is this possible? Well, the possible was possible. And sure enough, we had ourselves the best player in the game. Even if the form for Kings games was the place to be, did you end up getting to see any of the Showtime Lakers during your time in Southern California? Yeah, you know, and we, we actually shared kind of the, not a dressing room, but we shared some of the workout facilities and the showers uh, facilities with the Lakers. And 
I always wondered when I first got in there, why the heck are the showers so high up? You know, because they're almost like nine feet off the ground. You have a shower. It's kind of by your head, isn't it? Then there was the time when like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, or one of the players would walk into the shower and you'd be like, well, that's why they're so high up. Okay. But we got we got to know those guys a little bit and and got to you know take part and watch some of the games and they were clearly showtime they were it I would say that it was exciting to be a king exciting to be a Laker watching them win their championships sharing the facility and just you know kind of looking at what they had created and thinking wow if we could create the same would this be just awesome but it was the place to be in sports at the time in Los Angeles. Well, one more for you on your time in L.A. Your last season with the Kings would have been when John Tonelli was there. And, of course, John Tonelli, Islander legend, has his number hanging in the rafters at UBS Arena. So just any memories of uh, playing with John Tonelli? Well, he was my roommate. So on the road, it was uh, JT and I. And, uh, you know, he was one of those guys, again, you know, if you aren't asking him questions, then you are one stupid rookie who isn't paying attention because I was like a sponge and anything I could pick up from guys that played with great teams and great coaches and had uh, played on a dynasty and knew what it took to win and knew what it was like to have Billy Smith as his goalie and Al Arbor as his coach. Uh, I was willing to take any of that and all of it in and try to understand what it, what it took to be a pro and, you know, understanding too, that at the time, like it was later in John's career and you got to see what it was like, for me, it's kind of a window into what it was going to be like for me later on, seven, eight, nine years down the road, when I was at that stage, when I was going to help a young player to break into the league, to learn what it was like to be a pro, to learn what it's like to play and have your craft as an NHL player. It's not an easy league to play in. It's not an easy game to play at times. And so the more you can rely on the guys that have been there, done that, I know what I'm doing, just follow me kid i was all for that but i know jt to this day we're still friends he he had that boisterous that a contagious laugh and was well liked in the locker room and was a big part of our hockey team in la even a number of years after he had been part of a dynasty with the islanders so your second year in la kelly rudy comes from long island and what does that mean that there's a, a goaltending spot open with the islanders really the next year so you sign with the islanders in the summer of 89 and can you just take us back into the free agency process in those days and how you ended up with New York? Well, you know, you got to go back to um, when Wayne first got to L.A. And he went from Grant Fewer to me. So if that's not a downgrade, I don't know what is. And so one of the things that the Kings knew they needed to do was to get a goalie with playoff experience. And so Kelly became that goalie that they acquired in a trade. And I was to stick around just based on the fact that what if Kelly gets hurt? You have another goaltender who had played most of the year, and so I can fill in and do what I had to do and see if I, I can do the best imitation of Grant Fuhrer or Kelly Rudy that I can possibly put forward. And so uh, we stayed that year, and when the summer came, uh, back then we really didn't have free agent rights in a sense. We didn't really have arbitration. And so I was kind of that player to be named later, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that went back to the aisle to fill that spot where they were rebuilding. They were in a full rebuild mode. And so I was part of that rebuild. So yes, it looks on paper like a free agent signing, but in most cases, it was a piece on the chessboard that was taken off, but we're going to wait till the chess game's over before we put that piece back. 
And it might not be as big as Kelly Rudy, but it will be a piece to fill in and help being part of the rebuild. Well, I guess give us just some of your impressions of those first couple years on Long Island, just anything from playing for Al to some favorite teammates. And I know you spent some time in New Haven, so you're probably familiar with the Northeast, but, you know, had you even been to Long Island prior, aside from a game, I should say, prior to your time there? Completely shocked uh, by Long Island when I first kind of moved into the area. Uh, The the beauty of it, it it was, I mean, I was expecting Manhattan. That's it's New York. Isn't every part of New York paved? It's just one big skyscraper after another. You know, again, keeping, you know, keep it in the memory banks. I grew up by an eight reactor nuclear power plant. So there wasn't some clear thought there at times, but uh, incredibly uh, pleased by just how beautiful it was. The, the fan base, just incredibly electric. Uh, there's no question if you're an Islander fan, you are not a Ranger fan. And you cheer for your team, and I loved every bit of that. Al Arbor was the best coach I ever played for in my life. He was not only a coach, but he was a father figure. He was a mentor to us. He helped to take this group of players that had no idea how we were going to gel and win, and he put it together for us in the simplest of forms. And, yes, we had some young guys on the back end. Uh, the year we beat Pittsburgh, we had Malikov, Kasparaitis, we had Vasky. But we also had some experience up front. Pat Flatley was a great leader for us. Claude Loisel, we had Mully, we had Ray Ferraro. So we had some really, really good mix of players that had been there before, that knew what it took to win. And when you've got a boss general like Al Arbor who can pull it all together for you, like he did when we played Pittsburgh, uh, that journey is going to be an enjoyable one. And even though we weren't the dynasty team of, of the 70s and 80s, we certainly were a group that when we went to play, it was not going to be two easy points. It was going to be a hard-fought battle, and Al made sure that we competed every time we did play and uh, learned a lot from him. And at the end of the day, turned out to be a pretty good playoff run with a pretty good team my last year there. And it took them almost 20 years just even to get as far as we did on that particular year. So I'm really proud of those moments because a lot of people counted us out, but we counted ourselves in. Now in 93, that was a team that didn't even qualify and clinch a playoff spot until right at the end of the regular season. So at what Last point did you year. Yeah. Uh, at what point did you say, okay, this is a team that really does have the makings of one that could go on a run? Was it not until during the course of the Pittsburgh series or where was it? Well, I think, you know, we played Washington in the first round and they were a really good team. And uh, I think we've kind of, I'm not going to say we rolled them over because there were a lot of games that went into overtime and Ray Ferraro had a series of a lifetime. So so many big moments for Ray in that series and was a star. Uh, but the, the, the striking blow was at the very end of the elimination game with Pierre Turgeon getting knocked out by Dale Hunter. And, you know, he was our best player. He was our star. He was our kind of our make it or break it guy. And once that happened, we knew that we were going to go in to the next series minus Pierre Turgeon, which was our goal scorer, our power play guy. He played every role for us. And so Al, at that point, he kind of sat us down. We were going up against Pittsburgh, who were a dynasty, who had won, I think, 19 straight, finished the year, had won two Stanley Cups back-to-back, and I think Probably almost all of their players are either in the Hall of Fame or about to get there, but they had everything. And Al just basically looked at a Pat Flatley and asked if we could tie one shift against Mario Lemieux, could he do it? And of course, Pat said yes. 
And then it was Ray's turn. Of course, he said yes. And then it was Brian Mullen's turn. Of course, he said yes. And then we got around the room and it was like, time for the second period. Can you do it again, Pat? Of course, yes. Until we get to game seven, when all we have to do is win one shift in overtime. And we got to game seven and we won one shift in overtime. And I thought, man, this Al Arbor is some genius because he laid it all out for us. But he had us believe that we could achieve the impossible. We could take down Goliath. And we did. And Al was the mastermind of it. But there were a lot of players that played hurt, a lot of players that played with great will. Casper Reitus was incredible in that series. Tommy Fitzgerald was incredible. If not for him in game six, we don't get to game seven. So I think so many players had a hand in it. And probably the reason today that all of us are such great friends from that team, because we did something not with one guy or two or three, but with 23. And some ways more than 23, and we had players that played in game seven. I saw before the game, they played with us, a guy like Steve Junker, and I never saw him again. And I don't know where he is today. <laughs> but he played in one of the most incredible games that we probably have ever had. And then the next round was against Montreal and Patrick Waugh and all the overtimes with them. And, of course, they did everything they could to win, including putting eight guys on the ice. And it didn't matter. The refs can't count to nine. So eight was good enough for them. No sour milk. We did a pretty darn good job, but I wasn't beating Patrick Waugh. Well, I believe Steve went back to his day job as an electrician in uh, New Haven after that game. So, uh, But, sorry, you talked about Ray Ferraro. And just to underscore how good he was in that Washington series, he had eight goals in five games because he didn't score a goal in game six. He had eight goals in five games. He had a four-goal game. I believe you guys lost that game too. So just uh, Ray Ferraro unreal as far as that series but we heard a story from mick Pakota about that that ahead of game seven he was checking everybody's suitcases just to see who had brought one suit versus two suits uh you know one suit signifying you think that you're gonna lose that game and go home two or more suits meaning you're going on to montreal you know that was a really vivid memory for him do you have any recollection of that well game seven my recollection is the team didn't have a lot of faith in us getting to game seven either we flew out of two different airports so we didn't fly, we didn't fly charter back then. It was commercial. And so there was a flight that left from LaGuardia and one that left from MacArthur. So if you think that we didn't have the faith, I don't think ownership had the faith in us either. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. And then we met in Pittsburgh and said, okay, let's get at it. Let's see if we can beat this team and slay the dragon. And and there was no real knowledge though, um, that we were going to beat Pittsburgh on a Friday and have to play Montreal on a Sunday afternoon. Like that wasn't even in our thought process, how quickly we would have to wrap all this up and get into Montreal with the day in between being a media day as you go to the semifinals, because most of us had never been to the semifinals and understood it's not like a normal media day where they get to walk in the room, stabbing all over Glenn's pads, make a mess of the room and then leave. No, they actually have booths set up for you. They stick you behind the booth and media from all over the world comes in for round three and particularly for round four. So, you know, that that memory of that time and, and us winning that game seven, I recall after the game asking Al with Pat Flatley if we could buy a case or two of beer to celebrate the big win. And Al told me, yes, you're allowed two cases of beer 
no problem. We stop at a local establishment and we buy seven cases of beer. And of course, we sneak them up through the back emergency exit, the back of the bus, and then Pat and I politely walk on with our two cases. And as we're walking on, Al, whose nickname is Radar, said, I told you two cases, not seven. I saw him going in the window. He didn't miss a thing, that's for sure. But uh, a, a real big win for a team that wasn't supposed to win. And even to this day, if you talk to Mario or Kevin Stevens or some of the guys with regards to that, they still do not know how, with smoke and mirrors, we beat them. Al Arbor had certainly a lot to do with that. And in that conference final series in Montreal, you're playing, again, a, a semifinal at the Montreal Forum. Is there a lot that can compare to that in terms of going around the NHL? And and this is maybe the, the biggest stage you could possibly be on. Yeah, you know, there's uh, there's there's a few rinks that are kind of like the Vatican. You know, you could say Maple Leaf Gardens in their in the heyday, not the 80s, because, you know, the team wasn't that good. But certainly in the 60s, it was a juggernaut there. The Montreal Forum was always a tough building to play in. It was pretty clear who the fans were cheering for. <clears throat> and it wasn't the team that had the Islander crest on the front. And, uh, and, and the Boston Garden was another rambunctious building where, you know, you would have to walk into the crowd to, uh, to get to the ice. And there would always be the one fan who took a beer and threw it in your face. And, of course, the, the security guards would high-five them. It was, like, expected. Way to go! You know, nowadays you'd be ejected immediately. Chicago Stadium, sitting in the basement, the big walk up the stairs to get to that building for the National Anthem which is about as loud as you could get. So these are some of the buildings that were really tough to play in. And the Montreal Forum, understanding that it was going to be torn down in a, in a short period of time, and there weren't many days left to win the 23rd Stanley Cup, 23 of them. Well, that was their year. And everything fell into place for them. Every overtime game was theirs. Every open net was not ours. Every save was theirs. Every save I could have made was not mine. Uh, they had the hockey gods and the forum working on their side. And uh, a great experience, but uh, close, but just not close enough to get to the Stanley Cup final. We have to ask about another teammate of yours who you've brought up a couple of times and Pat Flatley, and there was the Heels and Flats show. So if you were watching an Islanders game on TV, you often had a good time watching you two characters go at it. So how much fun did you have with a guy like Flatley? Well, Kevin Manager, who is the uh, work with sports uh, net, I guess, back then, probably changed so many times, but he would listen to us on the plane and, uh, and Kevin would say, you know, we should put that on TV. You think about it, it was the first intermission piece for the Islander games. And so manager had an idea, which was pretty good, uh, in, in the sense that I had more fan mail for the show, Heels and Flats, than I had for my play on the ice. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but to this day, uh, Flats and I, if you would listen to a conversation on any particular day, and there are a number every week, it is exactly the same as the show. Uh, he hasn't changed. I haven't changed. We've gained some weight. I guess that would be the only change. But when we look back on those shows and we're critiquing the National Football League versus the Canadian Football League, we're critiquing Quebec, pretty much everything in today's world would be totally out of bounds with what we were talking about back then. 
But the one uh, show I did love the most was when we did a Bob Vila This Old House and Pat Flatley was getting totally torched and ripped off by the contractors. And we actually showed it on the show and he had no idea. So there was some good to the show, but for the most part, it was two guys having fun as friends. And uh, thank goodness it's long buried and in the archives and maybe we'll never see the light of day. Well, there are a few clips floating around and uh, the style from the early 90s is something else too. So very enjoyable. Were you guys roommates at all? Because obviously you're very close and you talked about rooming with John Tonelli in LA. Were you and uh, Pat or you and Flats ever roommates on the road? No, I could never room with him. Uh, Not a chance. I mean, it's okay just to chat with him, but rooming with him, impossible. I think it was with Vladimir Malikov because Vladdy didn't speak English. So it was a perfect mix. Flat had and nothing but gobshite to say, and Vladdy never knew what he said. And so they just got along great. It's wonderful, a great marriage. Now, uh, Flats and I, we kind of grew up in the Toronto area. So we knew each other before we even got to the National Hockey League. We played against each other in junior and played against each other as we grew up. And so we knew of one another, weren't really close friends until we got to the Islanders, and then we became you know, a pretty good duo. And, it, you know, again, that friendship has lasted many, many years later. Now, in the early 90s, that was when hockey video games were kind of coming on the scene. And I saw you were on the cover of three different video games. I think your name may have been taken off your jersey. I'm sure there was a licensing thing in there. But did you even know that that was going to happen or those games just come out and all of a sudden you were on the cover? Well, there is that uh, the only player to be on it three times. Gretzky was only on it twice. But, you know, let's be fair. I was getting scored on all three times. So I don't know if that's a good thing to be on the cover or not. But uh, back then, you know, if you had a hockey card, you were excited. You get on a video game cover, oh, it's the pinnacle. Like, why even bother playing? You're on the cover. Time to shut it down. No, I didn't know it back then. But now we keep track of everything. Continuing on with your Isles days, you mentioned that Billy Smith was briefly your goalie coach. Uh, or I, guess, I shouldn't say briefly. He was your goalie coach in an era where there were not a lot of full-time goalie coaches. We just had Jamie McLennan on the podcast who talked about uh, what it's like to have Billy Smith as your goalie coach. So he was a lot younger, but for you, a more experienced guy coming in, you know, just what were your interactions like with Billy and what did you take from uh, his teachings? Well, I remember the very first time uh, Billy worked with me in a game. It was a preseason game. And we were playing the Pittsburgh Penguins. And they had this youngster called Yermir Yager that they had just drafted. And he was an 18-year-old phenom. But he had a in overtime, a two-on-one in a tie game with Mario Lemieux. So a defenseman, Yarmir with the puck, wide open, Mario Lemieux. So we all are taught the goalie takes the shooter, correct? Defenseman takes the pass, correct? And I did that right to perfection, just like it says in the books. And Yager passed the puck to Lemieux for an empty net goal. Hey, not my fault, the defenseman's fault, correct? Yes. So as I'm sitting in the locker room, we lost in overtime. Billy comes down and asks me if I'm a complete idiot, wondering why he's asking me that. He goes, do you actually think that that 18-year-old was not going to pass to Mario Lemieux? Of course he's going to pass to Mario Lemieux. Start cheating or we're not going to win. It's good advice. He makes a lot of sense. What 18-year-old would not pass to Mario Lemieux on a two-on-one? Who on this podcast would not pass to Mario Lemieux 
on a two-on-one. So I had to be schooled as to what the rules were in the NHL, and Smitty helped me to do that. To be fair, you may not have known this then, but since then we've learned about Yarmir Yager and his personality, he's the type of guy that was a, a confident 18-year-old who may not have passed to Mario Lemieux, but obviously on that play, he did defer to a, a legend beside him and whatnot. But uh, something else that you're accomplished in is playing the bag- bagpipes. And we, as you mentioned, your parents are from Scotland and saw that you got to play on stage with Paul McCartney. Where does that rank in your accomplishments? I would say off the ice, but how about just in life in general, playing on a, on a stage with Paul McCartney? Yeah, you know, uh, bagpipes have kind of taken me all around the world into different venues that I never would have ever been in. I got to play at the D-Day beaches. I've got to play at the 90th recommemoration of Vimy Ridge, which is the birth of a nation for Canada. It ended World War I. I got to play in the 100th recommemoration of Vimy, which was, again, an incredible accomplishment. I got to play at Carnegie Hall in New York. But one of the highlights has to be playing Mullet Kintyre, which is a very famous uh, Paul McCartney tune. And uh, it was at the Air Canada Centre. We played a number of times, but that one in particular in my backyard, my hometown. And, uh, you know, on that particular day, we did a sound check with Paul and he came and said, all right, so it's going to be band on the run yesterday, Mull of Kintyre and let it be. We will come get you at 1114. And at 1114, we were taken out of our dressing room, put down below the stage. He began singing Mull of Kintyre. The band came up from the floor and uh, we put out our best four minutes and 10 seconds or however long the song is ever and was one of the highlights of my music career, playing career, hockey career. Got a chance to meet him. A great picture of the whole band on stage, all hand signed by Paul. And uh, that'll be something I treasure for sure. I thoroughly enjoyed that. And, you know, the big joke was, again, I was playing with the Leafs at the time and we had a goalie partner, Curtis Joseph. Curtis got to play most of the games. I was late in my career. I was close to 40. And the big joke was, well, finally, Glenn gets to play at the Air Canada Centre. It took me Paul McCartney to get me a game at the Air Canada Centre, but I got to play there. So there you go, Pat Quinn. I got my game in. It just happened to be as a fifth Beatle. Oh, that's a great story. Would you ever, I mean, when the Islanders went to the bubble, a lot of the guys brought guitars and stuff with them. So did you ever bring the bagpipes with you on the road and, you know, ever find any time to practice and maybe drive a roommate nuts uh, every once in a while? Well, with technology, we're lucky. Yeah, well, certainly that's not an instrument that you want to bring on the road. I have brought them on the road at times, and, and it hasn't been pleasant for hotel security for people to tell me to shut the blank up. Uh, but they do have electronic bagpipes. They're called dagger pipes that you can actually wear as earphones and you don't kind of obstruct the entire building and stop people from getting their sleep and have it so that, you know, you're being dragged behind the bus by a chain. <laughs> no, we uh, we had to find different ways. But uh, But yeah, I'd always bring them on the road, always find time to practice. And then when the season was over, you know, that's kind of like your your fun season where you get to play. And so I got to play, again, summers were mine. For years, people didn't know I played. I'd be in beer tents after we played, and I could hear people say, is that Glenn Healy? And someone else would say, nope, he's way too short. 
and I'd be looking at them saying, it is me, and I'm not that short, but whatever. But when I, when I played when, from the Arcana Center, from the Maple Leaf Gardens, the Arcana Center, I played with a, a band called the 48 Highlanders. It made the newspaper, and at that point, the secret was out, and I was no longer able to hide in beer tents throughout Ontario. They knew I played, and it was me. Well, a different kind of public stage, you know, I grew up in Vancouver, so I'm very familiar with Hockey Night in Canada. And of course, you were part of the Hockey Night in Canada team for a time and TSN as well. So just how did you wind up getting into broadcasting? Well, I'd finished playing in Toronto and the word hit the airwaves that I was bought out of my last two years of my contract. Even though I was 40, I thought I was completely done at 34, but I kept going. And objects in the mirror were closer than they appear. So I knew people were chasing me down. So I knew that was happening. Uh, but when I was kind of relieved of my uh, duty, so to speak, Hockey Night in Canada called me and said, would you have any interest? And I had done a little bit with the Islanders. If you remember when I severed a finger, I did a little bit with Jigs in, in a couple of the games and kind of liked it uh, the one year. I went with Hockey Night in Canada. Again, I was injured because of that severed finger. I, I worked with Hockey Night and Ron McLean. And then when my career did end, the call came and I said, I'll give it a try. If I stink and if I don't like it, I'm going to quit pretty quick. And I kind of just hung in there, but worked with some of the best people in all of hockey. Got to work with Jigs to start. Got to work with Ron McLean. Got to work with Don Cherry. I got to do the games with guys like Don Whitman, who are a legend in Canada, Chris Cuthbert, who's still a legend, Bob Cole, who was clearly the voice of Hockey Night Canada for almost six decades. And the so, best. Yeah, and he's the best. So many people that were so great that I got to work with that you really can't fail when you've got that big a brand and the talent of people, not only on the air, people in the truck are exceptional as well. And so I got a chance to work with all them and it thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, had fun until it wasn't as much fun as I thought it would be at the start and decided travel wasn't for me and it was time to take up something else. Well, these days around the NHL, most arenas have enough room on the bench for whoever the backup is that night. But when you were playing, there were a lot of rinks that did not. Coliseum really stands out where, especially as the, the road goalie, you would have to sit in the shoot there. So any funny stories from whether it's the Coliseum or any other arenas where you couldn't actually be on the bench but kind of had to sit amongst the fans while uh, backing up an NHL game? You know what? You would always have interaction with the fans. Um, and for the most part, they were all pleasant. You, uh, you managed to find ways to eat during the game. That was pretty good because all you had to do was duck your head kind of down below the bench or the, the dashers. And if it was a hot dog, just make sure you don't spill any on your sweater. Popcorn was always readily available. And so, you know, there was a benefit to being, you know, 100 feet from Al Arbor where he couldn't see you eat a hot dog or have a bag of popcorn or maybe a bag of chips and all those things you shouldn't be eating just in case you found your way to the net. So there was some benefits. And you got to meet some great fans. It, it was not one unpleasant moment not sitting on the bench, but but we did have some unpleasant moments when, you know, the door would be knocked on and it would be Ray Ferraro saying that Al wants you to jump into the net now and you better get ready. And you were about as warmed up as everyone on this podcast, like not at all. And good luck stepping into that beehive. 
You know what? We just asked Jamie McLennan about that, and he talked about getting caught eating a hot dog. But I have never even thought about the fact that you're right. How do they let you know that you're going to be going in if you're, you know, whether it's in the room in Chicago or down at the other end of the ice? So I just never thought of that. But yeah, I guess one of your teammates would have to come up and knock. Well, you know, uh, we had a game in St. Louis in the old building. Same thing. We had to sit in the Zamboni area. It was a game where Brett Hall was pretty hot. He had scored a hat trick. We, I think we were down 6 nothing at the time. The hats rained on the ice, and Ray Ferraro made the long skate to bang on the glass to get the Zamboni driver to open the door for him to walk down to tell me that Al wanted me to play, get ready. And I told Ray, you tell Al, I don't want to go in. So the door shut. He made his skate back. He told Al, he doesn't want to go in. So Al said, you tell that fat blank, he's going in. So back down to the door, bang on the glass. Zamboni crackers open the door. Ray makes the walk and tells me, Alice said, this is what you are going to do. And at that point, I guess they'd picked up the hats and I made my way to the net. But Ray tells the story a lot better than I do. But uh, I had full intention of going in. But I did love to see Ray, whose nickname is the Seagull, skate back and forth between the bench and the Zamboni, and then the bench and the Zamboni in full frustration uh, because you really can't say no to Al Arbor, can you? No. Well, Glenn, you've been very generous with your time. One more here for me. Uh, I've noticed, you know, your helmet set up during your career. You had the helmet and then kind of the cat's eye cage attached to it. And, you know, I think that style was probably a lot more common when you started playing and then towards the end, it's more of the masks that everyone's used to today. And we've asked Billy Smith about the transition from the fiberglass mask to the helmet and cage. Was there any reason you didn't go to the more current style of mask? Was there just something you really liked about the helmet and cage? Or is there a deeper story there? Just anything on that? Uh, you know, I would look, look a lot more handsome and rugged with 400 stitches in my face. Complete stupidity. In the sense, it wasn't a helmet. It was like a baseball hat. Every time I got hit, you almost got cut in every way. I just never could get used to the pressure of a mask, which was the the newer ones, being down the side of your face versus the pressure of the mask being on top of your head. And anytime I wore the newer masks, all I could think of was that mask on my head and never the shooter with the puck. And I figured it was much easier to get stitches and stay in play and collect a paycheck than to look prettier, wear a new mask, have a great mask that your kids would want to collect and suck and be out of the game in a year. So I, I picked plant the door number one, which was stay and play and not be as pretty as I could be when the game was all over for me. Getting hit in those helmets, though, I think Rick DiPietro tried one of those in 2012 and a Brian Rolston shot he had a heavy shot i, th I want to say in practice like left a dent in the mask so were there any ever close calls like that where you kind oh, of tested yeah. the no question yeah i uh i had stitches in my eyelid with a tony tanty shot where the bars were bent in and it uh, the bar scraped the eyelid so it, it needed to be stitched uh pretty much every time you were hit there was a, either a pressure wound a pressure cut uh it was not a protective piece of equipment and you know in some ways today, they test all the masks now. They never did for many years with the goalie masks. They let us do our own thing. Gosh, for many years, we didn't wear a mask. So and you know, we won a cup in 94 with a player who didn't wear a helmet. I thought that was crazy too. Uh, but now they do, and, and I'm glad they do because, you know, Mike Richter lost his career 
based on a Chris Tanner shot from center with the new mask, but it wasn't tested and wasn't up to snuff. And so you want to have players protected. And certainly that piece of equipment that I wore, and maybe that was my imitation of being Gretzky, you know, with the Jofa. I don't know, but it wasn't smart. But uh, no one said I was. So I was very consistent. Glenn, thank you so much. It's uh, It's been fun hearing all these stories. And uh, like Corey said, we really appreciate the time. Great. Anytime. And go Isles. Well, thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talk at Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at Rightsway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at NY Islanders and stay up to date on UBS Arena at ubsarena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lusher, and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talking Isles.